Acts chapter 9. That's where we're at. If you have your Bibles, open up to the ninth chapter of Acts. We're in the second part of our study of this book. It tells us the early history, the inauguration of the church, and the early history of its mission as it spread from Jerusalem to the very ends of the earth. There are some wild and crazy stories about what God does in the book of Acts. We studied the first part of it last summer. This is the second rendition. The transition point was Acts chapter 6. From Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 6, there's three to four years where basically the church is unstoppable. They would preach the gospel. The Pharisees would come and criticize them for preaching the gospel. They would arrest them. The jail cells would open. They would then go back to the same places where they were arrested preaching the gospel. They would preach the gospel again. They seemed untouchable. They were threatened, but they continued to grow. And God was adding to their number daily those who were being saved, which was a common term that we read in Acts 2 and in Acts 3 and in Acts 4. In Acts 5 and Acts 6. But in Acts 6, there's a transition. Uh, the counterpuncher comes, unity becomes difficult. The church has been together long enough to love each other in Christ, but not to love each other because sometimes people just get on your nerves, even if they love Jesus. Anybody ever been there? You've been in a church where everyone loved Jesus, but you didn't necessarily like everybody that was in that church because they made it hard for you to love Jesus because they were a challenge for you. The way that they worshiped, the way that they talked, the way that they chewed. It's amazing what things can get into a church and cause it to have disunity. I never will forget the story of a church called Hatpeg Baptist Church. They got their name because they were in a church split over Hatpegs in the foyer of the church. And for some of us, that's the kind of unity battles we've seen dividing us from other believers in the house. And so there was a division within it. They raised up other leaders. One of those leaders was a guy named Philip. We've studied his stories recently, but the guy that really transitions us into church in the wild, church leaving Jerusalem and going into the surrounding areas, is a guy named Stephen. Stephen was a servant, a deacon in the early church in Jerusalem. He was called to give an account of the gospel. He did the exact same thing that Peter and John and other apostles had been doing, but he got the complete opposite results. He was obedient to God in the moment, preached the gospel to the Pharisees in that moment, but instead of them doing nothing and walking away, they gnashed their teeth, picked up stones, and threw rocks at him until he died. We're introduced in Acts chapter 6 to a character named Saul. Saul's going to become a primary character from Acts 9 on in this story and through much of your New Testament. Saul was a Pharisee trained under a man named Gamaliel. He had likely memorized the entire Old Testament. He knew lots about God, but he had yet to meet God. Uh, and as a, as a zealous Pharisee, he was on a mission to snuff out the people who were following this God named Jesus. He wanted nothing to do with them or Jesus at all. Are you tracking with me? Uh, Philip, Acts 8, just giving you a synopsis of where we're at. Acts 8 has gone to Samaria, preached the gospel. People have received it joyfully. Harry Potter even comes into the story. Simon the Sorcerer hears about Jesus. It, it, Harry Potter, Simon the Sorcerer, it's a joke, it's a church joke. But, but anyway, he, he had a spell book. People burn them later in the book of Acts. It's crazy. But anyway, he tries to buy the Holy Spirit. That doesn't go well. You can't buy Jesus. You can't buy off Jesus. You will stand before Jesus, and you will give an account for your life before him. And the only thing that will give you the right to eternal life with him is his very blood. Not what you've done, not the accolades you have, not the platitudes that you can speak of, not the achievements or the mission or the sacrifice you make. There's only one sacrifice that is is acceptable. It was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, who sacrificed his life as a substitute in your place that gives you the right on the last day to with confidence say on that day that I belong there because his blood paid for me down here to have access to what's there. Are you tracking 
with me in that. And so uh, the gospel's preached. Philip's taken up. He teleports and he goes to an Ethiopian eunuch. He preaches the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch who's coming from Jerusalem, who is reading Isaiah chapter 53, which is for many theologians the fifth gospel because it's so saturated with the details and the way in which Jesus would come and live and die as our Messiah and substitute. He'll be uh, persecuted. He'll be, uh, excuse me, I'm trying to get it in my head. Hang on. He, wa- he was. Uh, uh, by his stripes will be healed. That's what's coming to my mind right now. So there's Isaiah 53. You can go read it later. Uh, the guy's reading it. He translates and points to the fact that it's Jesus. He baptizes him. Then he's taken away again. Then Acts 9 picks up with Saul and what's going on there. Are you tracking with me? Acts 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, as all that's going on, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest in Jerusalem, and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus, on his mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone around him. Let me give you some context. Uh, Saul Uh, does not have the same kind of clout and authority outside of Jerusalem that he does in Jerusalem. And that comes from the way the government was set up back in the day. Damascus was 140 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, It was not predominantly a Jewish settlement, but there were lots of Jewish people there, so many so that they had several synagogues, several places of worship. The early Christian church had continued to meet, not only in houses and around their tables, but they would go into the squares of the synagogues and they would preach the gospel in Jerusalem, which is why they got in so much trouble. It'd be like me showing up to a, 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 a place of worship of another god and starting to preach the gospel in the foyer of that place. Naturally, that was frowned upon. If you want to know if it's frowned upon, go try it sometime and tell me how it goes for you. It didn't go well. They got arrested several times doing this kind of stuff. So, naturally, after the dispersion, where would the early church go and gather to find other people who had a foundation in the gospel or in a foundation in the Old Testament who were looking for this Messiah, waiting on the Messiah and the announcement of his arrival? The synagogue. But the problem is, is in Damascus, it's a big city. And the way the government system worked is Rome had come and taken over basically everything in the region. And they would be the primary government. They had the right to tax everybody that was there to feed their army. But in order to keep the peace, they would take the uh, governments or the people that were of highest authority in the community, and they would make them second in command. They would give them the right to take extra taxes to pay for their interest and their needs as a community. And so they would come in and they would set up a shop, get the second-in-command group of people to work with them. In Jerusalem, it was the Sanhedrin and, Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they worked in coordination. Some of them, uh, the Sadducees hated them, but they worked in coordination with them. This is the history major coming out of me, uh, to run daily operations of government, which means they had the authority to do things like ask the Roman government to put people to death on the cross. But they don't have the same clout in Damascus. There's other government systems in place under the Roman government that have more clout. So they can't just go up there and start crucifying people. They can't go up there and expect to be heard by the Roman government in Damascus. So Paul goes and says, give me letters so I can go and work with the synagogue to basically bounty hunt all of these Christians, get them out of here, bring them back to Jerusalem so that we can kill them. This is what's going on. Many of you would say, that you aren't a Christian, but you aren't an adversary to Christians. You're not someone that's seeking to hurt Christians or harm Christians. Uh, but what we have here 
is someone who's making it their life mission and believing that it's God's will and work to go and hunt Christians down and kill them. In fact, if you flip later in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 26, verse 9 and 11 speaks to the way in which Paul saw life. I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus, the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem, authorized by the leading priest. I caused many believers there to be sent to prison, and I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Now, this is how bad it was. Check this out. Many times I had them punished in the synagogue to get them to curse the name of Jesus. So literally it was, we would beat them and then say, recant. And then if you refused, we would beat you some more. And then if you refused, we'd probably throw you in the jail and not feed you or give you water and we'd let you suffer. And then we'd pull you out the next day and we'd beat you some more to get you to recant and curse the name of Jesus. And if you wouldn't curse the name of Jesus, then eventually we'd just put you to death. Consider this. This is who we're dealing with. Most of us only know Saul as Paul which is a massive changed person. But the person that we're dealing with in Acts chapter 9 is an active hunter of people who follow Jesus, and he believes it is God's will that he kill all of them and get them off of planet Earth. Now, how many of you know people that need Jesus in your life? Okay. Now, uh, there's some of you, and then some of you didn't raise your hand, which means you may be the people that need to know Jesus. My point is, (laughs) my point is, there's probably within that group of people uh, a large group of them that you think, well, if we invite them to church, they'd probably come, right? You've got some of those. Like if we asked them to come and bribed them with lunch, uh, we're really kind, they'd probably show up to church once with us, okay? Then there's another group of people that are a little bit more hard-headed. They came to church. They didn't like it. How can anyone not love this, you know, in, in your mind? But they're, they're a little bit more resistant to coming to church. Well, all churches are corrupt. I want nothing to do with it or whatever. You know, they have their reasons. But then there's a third group, and that's where Saul probably is. And you look at them, and you're like, mm, probably not. I don't know how many prayers God's going to answer for me, but I'm not, I'm not going to use a prayer on that one. Uh, that'd be a miracle. And I know I'm not supposed to say that out loud as a Christian, but let's just be honest. You've got some people that you don't even ask God about anymore. Because in your mind, that's how far the gap is between where they are and where God is. In your mind, that's where your faith ends. In the belief that they are reachable. That God cares. That God can change. That God can transform. I want you to bring that person to mind because that's who we're dealing with in Acts 9. This is not someone who's on the short list of close to following Christ. Uh, Future author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of letters to the early Christian church that will be canonized in our Bible and read. That's not what you're thinking when you think about Paul. What you're thinking is duck, run, hide, cover. And the good news is God doesn't consult your view on what he's doing in other people's lives. God doesn't come to us and go, what's the likelihood of them accepting my invitation to follow me and walk with me? Thank God. Thank God. The first few verses introduce us to a city where the people in the early church have been dispersed. They're sharing the gospel. It's going well. Saul wants it to end. He wants it over. Look at what it goes on to say. Verse uh, 3. Oh, one more thing. One more thing. A cool note. A cool note. Can I give you one more cool note? He requested letters addressed to the synagogue. I'm going to whether you want to or not. He addressed letters addressed to the synagogue in Damascus asking for the cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the, the way. 
That's the early name of Christians in the early church, the way. It makes sense because John 14, 6 says, I am the the truth and the life. So they were known as people of the way. It was a different way than what the Jewish synagogue had taught. They didn't understand it, so they just labeled them as people of the way, and perhaps they had adopted this as an early uh, 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 name for them as followers of Jesus. Where did Christians first get called Christian? Anybody know? How do we get there? Is this something we added in like Santa later? Like what happened? How we get there? The answer is Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, verse 26, uh, we are told that it was in this city where a multicultural gathering of people were gathered together and the world looked at it and went, why are they hanging out? And why do they like each other? And someone likely said, well, they're Christian. That's why. And so I want you to understand that the, the name Christian comes from not understanding why an eclectic, normally divided in society group has been brought together, and they had no other word for it except to say, that must be the work of Christ. You tracking with me? But for now, they're known as people of the, of the way. Verse 4, continuing on, I'll try to leave some of my Bible nerd facts out so that I can get you to your lunch. He fell to the ground. As, as he's going to Damascus, it's a, it's a five-day journey, five, or excuse me, a six- to seven-day journey. It's 140 miles by foot. So think about how mad you've got to be to be willing to walk six to seven days to end something. And notice, he's not going with everyone in Jerusalem from the synagogue, because for them, most of them are like, out of sight, out of mind, not our problem anymore. So they don't care what's going on in Damascus. They're just glad that it's not going on the way that it was going on in Jerusalem. So in their mind, they're not going for it. Saul's like, no, this is a big deal. You ever met that person who's always like, everything's important. It's always important. Why aren't you as upset as I am about this? It's so important. You ever met that person? That's Saul. That's his upside and his downside. He cares way too much. Way too much. And Jesus is like, oh, I'm going to use him. I'm going to use him. Okay. Sorry. This is what happens when I read the Bible. I start, anyway, verse 4. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Obviously, the next question means Saul has no clue who's talking to him. So he says, who are you, Lord? Not as a term of your God, but as a term of, I recognize you're powerful. I just fell on my, I got off my donkey. I'm on my knees. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what's happening to me. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. What an invitation. It wasn't like, well, I'm the Lord and Savior of the world. Would you like to receive me as Lord? It essentially was, hi, today's the day your life ends, and you surrender it to me. I will now take control and tell you what you're going to do with the rest of your life. Let me be clear. I'm very grateful for a God that at times steps in in spite of me and saves me from myself. I'm very thankful for the fact that there is a God that sometimes sees me in my own self-interest and self-righteousness and says, nope, not going to let it happen, and I'm going to intervene, and I'm not going to allow you to walk down the path of your own destruction and walk down the path of you continuing to do what you're doing. I'm going to intervene on your behalf. You see, look, look I want to be very clear theologically with you. You don't find God. God interrupts and finds you. He, he runs after you. He grabs you. He loves you. He cares for you. And I'm so grateful that we have a God that doesn't wait on us to seek him, but he's the God that seeks and saves us. And this is what happens with Paul. 
He's on his way to destroy every Christian that he can find, everyone that's of the way in Damascus. And in the middle of his route, he gets redirected by a God that says, game over. Game over. In the middle of this, there's two things that Paul learns very clearly. Number one, Jesus is not an idea or a fallen teacher or a good person, but Jesus is the risen Savior and Messiah. Dead men tell no tales. You learned that in Pirates of the Caribbean. You didn't have to come to church for it. <laughs> Dead men don't speak. Jesus is speaking, which means he's alive. Number two, all this time where Saul has thought that he has been persecuting the church, he's actually been persecuting the name of Jesus. And there's a warning in here. It's a tough one for a lot of us because, look, uh, you get around enough people long enough, They'll do some jacked up stuff to you and give you reason not to like them. And you don't need a church to get enough people together to be dysfunctional. Your work is a, wor a living example of what dysfunction continues to look like. And what ends up happening whenever you experience hurt in church, if you don't know the gospel and you don't know the call to be a person of reconciliation and a peacemaker, so far as it be up to you, that's Romans 14 is you, you begin to criticize the people of God thinking that you can spread their name and their business and their mistakes around town and it's all about them but not about Jesus. I still love Jesus. Many of you say it this way. I love Jesus. I just don't love those church people. Here's the problem. The church is referred to as the bride of... Huh. If you come to me and you're like, hey, Russ, you're really cool, like your haircut, you preach barefoot, that's awesome. You know, you've got a really well-shaped dad bod. It's awesome, man. We, we should hang out sometime. We should hang out sometime. But not a fan of your wife. Not, don't really like her. So could we hang out without her? Let me be very clear with you. This is not going to go well. No, we cannot be friends. Yet for many people, we wander around bad-naming the bride of Christ, thinking that we're not persecuting the name of Christ. It may not look the same, but for a lot of us today, that's all we're doing. Why don't you forgive them instead of hold a grudge against them? Well, they haven't asked for forgiveness. When, when did them asking for forgiveness, when, when is that listed as a prerequisite to you letting go of the offense that they've given you? They're not carrying it. You're carrying it. Why are you holding it whenever Jesus is giving the opportunity to entrust it to his cross or his judgment? Why not entrust it to him and stop carrying that stuff around? Yet for many of us, we walk around with a chip on our shoulder and we never engage in a healthy gospel community because we're still mad about what three churches ago did. Forgive them. I know it stunk. I know it was wrong. I, I wish there was a way that it would all be reconciled and fixed on earth in front of you and it would be easier. But, but the idea is that we're to let go of it because we have been freed, we have been forgiven, and we're to walk in the grace and the goodness of God as God leads us into the future that he has called us to go to. Okay, all right. Here, here's the point. At this point in time, Saul, in verse by Acts 9, verse 9, he picks himself up off the ground, verse 8, he opens his eyes and they're blind. He cannot see. So his companions lead him by the hand the rest of the way into Damascus. And he remained there blind for three days and he did not eat or drink. Some of you have already thought about lunch 15 times. I want you to think about such an encounter. No, seriously. I want you to think about such an encounter with God that you can't eat and drink. You're like, I don't eat anymore. I cannot, based off of what I've seen, operate the way that I used to operate. 
That, that's how impactful this encounter with Jesus was for him. I cannot just go back to three a day and a nap and, and a meal and a little bite. Like, I, I, can't, I can't go back to like reading verse of the day, saying a quick prayer before dinner, and then like living as if God's not actually engaging. Like I, I, knowing that that is there has impacted me to such an extent that nothing before that moment looks the same, feels the same, is seen in the same way, is valued in the same way as it was before it. You see, I'm trying to describe to you the difference between knowing facts about God and actually having met God. Because that's what happens to Saul. Saul, his whole life, has studied God. But he has never in any of his study and any of his intellectual pursuits met God. What changes him is not just the amount of knowledge he knows. He goes to spend three years, though, after this, just studying the Old Testament again because he assumes basically that everything he has known has basically been wrong and goes to relearn the entire Old Testament through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you need to understand that what happens between Acts 9, where we're at now, and the end of the chapter, when they move off of Saul and we go away from him, is about four years of Christian development. You think it's a week or a few days. It's four years of him literally going, nothing is the way that I thought it was because now that I've seen Jesus, everything has changed. So Paul, think about it this way. Paul saw him and couldn't see after he stopped looking at him. And those that were with him, likely temple guards who never turned or believed, we have no clue what happens to them, they heard him and they were astonished in, in fear of their life. That's what you're dealing with when we talk about the Almighty God. We're not talking about a precious moment where a fat baby with wings is playing a harp, and we're just like, oh, it's so nice. Let's hold hands and sit around a, a, a fire with you. This is King of Kings and Lord of Lords stuff that he's seeing. This is the one who's going to get on a horse, and out of his tongue is going to come truth, and he's going to divide those who are with him and those who are against him, and no one's going to be able to resist or fight against him. I love the Psalms. In the Psalms it says, Behold the one who comes to wreak devastation on the earth. How is he going to do it? It says, He breaks the bows and the chariots. He basically takes everyone that's fighting for their sub-kingdoms and their authority and their leadership, and he says, No, 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 no. It's always been mine. I'm taking it back now. No more fighting. No more arguing. You can call yourself a king, and everyone around you could have called you a king. You've just met the king of kings. Sit down. You got to understand, there is a terror to the idea, apart from Jesus, of us standing in the presence of the holiness of God. That should accompany, that should give a chill. You see, his entire life, he's likely memorized the Old Testament. He knows all the prophecies about the, upcoming, uh, about the coming Messiah. He's memorized Isaiah 53. He, he knows so much factual knowledge about God. I mean, I want you to think about that. He knows Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy by heart. And some of you have never even read Leviticus all the way through because you're like, ah, oh, enough of the measurements. And he memorized it. You're like, hey, Leviticus, whatever, when they're measuring out the ark, what are the measurements? And he could tell you. Like, I'm not talking about like, hey, who built a boat out of arky-barky? Because that's where a lot of us are. We're like, oh, I know the Bible. I know that Moses built the boat. He didn't. That's, that's, that's a big one, thunder. It was Noah, right? 
I mean, you, you know a lot of stuff about the Bible that you could like say. I grew up around this in, in the South. How many of you know that, who, who had a coat of many colors? Joseph, congratulations, four people. Uh, who, who parted the waters and walked through on dread sea, on, on, uh, walked through on the uh, on dry land? Moses, who was the last pick of his father, or a run of his family that took down a giant. Oh, you know some Bible. That's awesome. But have you met Jesus? That's the difference. You see, it's it's not just that you got the Christian ethic down; it's that you've got Jesus in you. Colossians says it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, so look, look. What makes Paul, Saul, who's going to become Paul, useful is not is not that he's like grown up around the church and his starting point was a grandma in the faith and, and, and they love the Lord. That's good. What you need, foundationally, essentially, and, and everything else is dressing, I would say it's only, is Jesus. And if you've met Jesus, you're different. And if you've not, you can be really self-righteous and religious, but you've not changed. Look, some of you women, you're super mad at your husband right now. He just needs to meet Jesus. And, and you're mad. You're mad. You're mad at him. Why don't you change? He said, well, I'm trying. And he talks about the rules. I did this. I did this. And they, that, that, look, look, a sign that you don't know the gospel is you list your platitudes whenever someone confronts you about your insecurities. That's a good sign. You're trying to prove it instead of knowing that you've received it. I mean, that, that's what Satan tried to do to Jesus, right? If you really are the son of God, prove it. Christians know that what they are is by the grace of God. In fact, this God that we're talking about is going to write something in the Bible that says, I am what I am by the grace of God. He's no longer looking and going, I am what I am because I memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And I spent the entirety of my life while all you were running around in pagan revelry, just memorizing the Bible and worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he saw me and thought, what a great vessel. I will use him. He's so strong. He's so smart. He's so intellectual. Let's grab him. Let's put him on a platform and let him preach to the masses so that everyone will bow to his intellect and be wild. But no, he had to meet Jesus. And what he points to in the, in the future over and over again is that he met Jesus, he recalls in the book of Acts this very account two more times. He points back to this moment as the moment that his life changed. See, it may not be as over the top as Saul's conversion, but it's nonetheless powerful. If you've met Jesus, you've got a story of a moment where Jesus went from being an idea to someone that was real. Uh, a theory to someone who was living and active and engaged. You see, sometimes it's in a moment when you're in isolation and alone. I had a friend who was in a lake house by himself in Townville in the middle of nowhere, and he wasn't a believer, and he was an atheist or an agnostic. He didn't know really where he was. He just was angry at the idea of God, and he had this girl that he liked, so he went to church, because that's usually the way some guys end up here. And they were preaching about this Jesus that loves and compassion and mercy. And he's laying in bed and he's thinking about how that contradicts what he's experienced in his life. And so he's arguing with the air because he doesn't know that he actually believes in God. And he's like, if you're so real, God, would you just prove that you're real? And in that moment, as he was arguing with God, he felt the Lord speak to him and introduce himself to him. And he ended up giving his life to the Lord and changed his major, went into ministry and worked with me on a staff in California at a church. And it started not in a grand uh, uh, a reveal in front of a lot of people. It started in Townville with no one around him. 
But he went from being a person that had questions about God and hurts and pains that he couldn't equate to a good God in spite of that pain to being a follower of Jesus that was advocating for God after the fact. One of my first mentors was a guy named Naeem. Naeem came over from Iraq uh, to go to the College of Charleston. He knew no English, but his brother, who had come from Iraq, became a believer. And everywhere Naeem went, uh, the, he had to go with his brother because his brother was the only one that could speak English. So his brother was always taken to Bible studies, which he didn't mind the girls, but he hated the subject because they were always talking about Jesus. And everyone was singing to Jesus. And everyone was praying to Jesus. Everybody raising their hand to Jesus. And people were clapping their hands to Jesus. People were excited about Jesus. And he was like, what is this Jesus stuff? Like, I don't understand it. It's so frustrating. But he would try and spit game to all the Christian girls. None of them would uh, reciprocate it. See a developing theme here. Uh, so he goes back to his dorm room one night, and you can actually watch his testimony. It's been put online and played on TV and everywhere else. He said, I went to my dorm room, and I said, God, if you're so blankety-blank and real, why don't you show it? Which is a, he'll say is a very dangerous prayer to pray. As he was in his dorm room, it was the middle of the day. It all of a sudden became dark. He was paralyzed to his bed. The door swung open. This large figure came in and grabbed him and said, you're going to die tonight. He was petrified. He ran down the hallway, cussing over and over again, running down the hallway, finds his brother, says, this is what happened to me. His brother begins to explain to him that one-third of the heavenly host fell from heaven in a rebellion with Satan, and they now operate on earth working against the work of God, that there's one name and authority over all authorities, and that name is Jesus, and if you want freedom and power and deliverance from that, you need Jesus in your life. He said, well, give me Jesus. And he, and he said, no, you don't understand. And he kept explaining the gospel to him and how this was different from everything else. And Jesus wasn't one of many gods, but he was the way and the truth and the life. And as a result, through several hours of conversation, Naeem came to the conviction that this Jesus who he had heard, though he had culturally been raised Muslim, was real and was alive and was active. And so he prayed and he surrendered his life to the Lord and asked the Lord to come and be his Lord, leader, and healer and walked out of there. Well, he didn't want to walk out of there. He looked at his brother and said, move over and let me lay beside you. His brother said, no, go back to your room. There's more stuff that God has for you. And he said, that's not comforting. <laughs> so he goes down to his dorm room, pulls a sheet over his head and says, I'm not pulling it off. And the next few moments in his story, he says he pulled the sheet off his head, and it was as if the peace of God flooded the room, and for the first time he felt God's presence, and it was as if Jesus said to him, Hi, Naeem, I've been waiting to meet you. You see, there's such a difference. Whether we over-sensationalize it or it's simple, like in a crowd, you heard the gospel, and Jesus came in a room filled with people and personally said, Hi, I'm Jesus. There's a difference between knowing things about God and having actually met Jesus. Now, something crazy happens in this story. Um, the hunter who is hunting believers all of a sudden is now dependent upon those he hunted for him to get back to where he was. He's blind. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 10, it says this. Look at it with me. There was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to the street called Straight, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. That's kind of cool. I've never had a moment where I felt the Lord speaking to me. He's like, hey, so-and-so's praying right now. Give him a call. I have had lots of moments, though, where I feel a sense from the Lord that I need to call someone or reach out to someone. I'll reach out to them like, how'd you know? It's a cool thing about being sensitive to the Spirit and praying. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming and laying hands on him so that he can see again. Naturally, Ananias heard this, knowing of Saul's reputation, thought, of course we should go and hug a bear. I mean, keep in mind, this is a guy that's trying to murder you. And they know it. And he's on his way to take you back to Jerusalem so that they can 
you. Right? Ananias feels the Lord prompt him, go, and he's like, okay, just a few questions. <laughs> Let's discuss this. We should have a prayer meeting. We need to discern some stuff. I'm not sure the lead-in is go to the person who's causing the entire church around this area trauma and lay your hands on him for prayer. Should we take an army and lay hands on him because he tried Jesus and he tried me and I'm not as gracious as Jesus? Sure. But should we lay hands of healing on this guy so that then he can see us? Sounds like, Lord, you've worked out a good scenario. He can't see. We now can hide. He's like, Marco, we don't say polo. Everything goes well. This is the stuff that happens when I read the Bible. ADD is a gift. But the Lord exclaimed, Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers, a.k.a. I'm not shocked by his rap sheet. I, I'm not uninformed about what I'm sending you in to. Things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. How many of you love the first part of Saul's calling? Like, yes, Lord, send us leaders and kings and rulers. I'll go and suffer. And then the hands start to slowly fall. You see, that, that comforts the American God. Why are our churches still empty? comfort. Last I checked, the harvest is still what? Plentiful. But the laborers, those who talk about Jesus outside of the gathering when the preacher talks for you about Jesus, are what? Huh. Look at us. Middle of July. Myrtle Beach should be slammed today with people at church. But guess what? It's not happening down there. Holy things. Holy things. <laughs> Sorry, I thought that was great. That, it just <laughs> popped in there, came out. Here's my point. Here's my point. Everyone wants to sign up for the good parts of the Christian life, but what you don't need to understand is that in God's kingdom, he positions different people for different tasks. God's going to use Saul as a groundbreaker. He's going to take the gospel where it's never been before. He's going to live for years in places where no one's heard the gospel or seen it lived out. And in God's kingdom, some of you are going to be called to be groundbreakers. What does that mean? You go into a tough place where there's not much gospel hope or gospel fruit, and you carry the gospel there. You may not be the one that reaps the harvest, but you're the one that broke the ground. In God's kingdom, there's people that are ground preparers. Uh, they go into ground that's been broken, and they come behind now that the name Jesus has been heard, and they begin to work on that ground, preparing it for the seed. Then there's seed sowers. These are people that have unique giftings that God has given them where they're sowing the literal seeds of the word of God and teaching it to those that are in that community. And they sow the seed into the ground that's been broken and prepared by others that have come before them. So you've got ground breakers, you've got ground preparers, you've got seed sowers, which leads us to what everyone wants to do, and that's be a harvester of the Lord's work. In every harvest, you need to understand that before the harvest, God sent a groundbreaker, a ground preparer, and a seed sower. And whenever you're in a season of harvest, it's the gift of God working through other people that has allowed you to experience his goodness in that. It's why you shouldn't pound your chest and go, we did it right and the generation before us did it wrong. No, no, no. The generation before you may have broke the ground that was prepared so that you could sow the seed, so that you could experience the harvest in your life time. Don't be discouraged if God's called you to be a groundbreaker. 
Groundbreakers don't have 2,500 people that come to faith in Jesus at the hearing of a sermon. They prepare the ground for the preacher or the people that come and profess the gospel that sow the seed so that the Spirit can bring the harvest that others get to reap and enjoy. For some of you, you've been discouraged your whole life, feeling like you're not making a big difference. I've got a friend right now who's planted the first Christian church in Thailand. They have 20 people meeting in a house church. It's the first one in the entire history of that village of 10,000 people that's had the opportunity to hear the gospel. He's breaking ground. He's preparing the ground. But he likely won't be the one that builds a church that grows into the hundreds or thousands that are in that village. It'll be a generation that comes after them, and on the work and effort of them, they see that happen. Saul's going to suffer, but he's going to break the ground so that ultimately there can be a costly peace that is realized, a costly peace that is seen. You see, this is the beauty of the gospel. God sends the hunted to care for the hunter. It reminds me of a text where Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst, ha, ah, this is a kingdom value. Yes, they might revile you. Yes, they might ridicule you. Yes, they might kill you, but I've killed death. <laughs> yes, they, they might persecute you. Yes, they might plug their ears and not want to hear you. Yes, they might try to ignore you and drown you out, but I will never let my word return void. You see, th th this is the beauty of what we have in Jesus. I get excited when I think about it, that I'm not alone, that, that I'm in good company, that I have a God that sends us into the tough ground so that by his word and by his grace and by his power we can break ground so that we can see by the enrichment of his kingdom and it being realized and seen on earth, we can enrich the ground so that when the seed of the word goes into the ground, there could be a harvest that comes out of the ground for us to harvest. And God was taking a guy like Saul who was an adversary and he was going to make him an advocate by his power so that he would become one of those voices in the church that would encourage and build us up. So what am I getting at? Well, a couple things. I didn't have time to do it in any service, but Here's, here's the things I would encourage you with. Number one, um, Francis, this guy named Francis, where's his name? Francis, Francis Thompson. He wrote a uh, poem called The Hound of Heaven. And I can relate to it because I grew up knowing that Jesus had something for me and I wanted nothing to do with it. And some of you are that person. And you've been running from God your whole life, halfway committed, just trying to get him off your back, halfway giving allegiance so that you can say to your mom or to your grandma that you're in full allegiant love with Jesus. And I want you to know, you will not win. You will not win. In his poem, he says, I fled God, 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 I fled. Over and over again, he keeps saying, I fled. And it ends with, but he kept walking back or walking and showing up in my story. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. I fled God, and I fled God, and I fled God, and I fled God. And God gave me friends like that guy right there that kept mirroring God back to me. And I kept running, and I kept resisting, and God kept showing up. And so we invite you, listen, knuckleheads, chuckleheads, stiff-necked, hard-hearted, we invite you to repent. Move from being someone who's resisting him to being someone who's filled with him. Move from being an adversary of him to being an advocate for him. Just repent and come home. Jesus loves you. He desires to have a relationship with you. I get it. It's confounding to us too. Why would God love any of us this way? He wants you. And if that's you and you need a relationship with him, I invite you to come forward. N number two, and this will just be an encouragement for the believers. I'll be brief about this, really brief about it. That's not preacher brief, really brief. What I mean is... Uh, what we see in this story is the journey to spiritual maturity. 
It starts easy. Paul goes and preaches in Damascus, and everyone receives it with joy. That's what you see in verses, chapter 9, verses 19 to 22. He had great success debating his Jewish brothers in the synagogues in those verses. His natural abilities, great intellect, and extensive knowledge equipped him to outwit even the finest minds of his day in the village. But then it got difficult. That's in every Christian journey. It starts easy, and then it gets difficult. If you're going to mature in Christ, you need to understand that it's not always going to be easy. It's going to get difficult. That's what we see in verses 23 to 25. Saul becomes the target of an assassination plot in verses 23 to 25. So much so they have to lower him out of a basket from the window of the city in the middle of the night to get him out. Saul's plans for uh, persecuting Christians in Damascus took a strange turn. And he had entered the city blind and left in a basket. Ironically, he became the object of persecution around him. It gets tough. If you're going to mature in Christ, you need to know that when it stops being easy and it starts getting tough, you've taken a step of maturation. You should encourage yourself in the Lord. God's at work. So you go from easy to it being tough to then what? To then what? You thinking this is impossible. Some of you have arrived there in your faith. Verses 26 to 30, Saul returns to Jerusalem, and when he gets home, no one wants to be his friend. No one wants to hang out with him. He's in isolation, and he's alone. All of his old peers from the temple no longer welcome him at their tables. He's, they're understandably, and uh, people who are of the Christian uh, community are understandably uh, suspicious about anything doing or having done with him. You see, what, what he goes through from new birth to maturity over this process, which is about a four-year period, keep in mind, is it's easy, it's hard, it's impossible, and God goes, and now you're mature. Why? Because when you stop thinking you can do it, God can start doing it through you. And for a lot of you, the biggest problem you've got in your life is you think you can be a Christian. Nope, you can't. But Jesus can do it in and through you. And right now, the biggest obstacle to many of you maturing, to many of you stepping into a new season or a new chapter in your life, is you still think that you can do this. So I invite you to quit thinking you're the one making the transformation happen. That only came out in this service. What in my notes? Someone need to hear that. Straight up. Leave here knowing you can't and he can't and that's why I have confidence with whatever's going to come over there. Our prayer team's here. If you need to give your life to Jesus, come home, stop resisting, Stop running. Stop fleeing. He loves you. He wants a relationship with you. Come home today. For those of you that are followers of Jesus, it's gotten tough. You're maturing. It seems impossible. You're really close to maturity. You've accepted that you can't do it, and now you're realizing Jesus is going to have to do it if it's going to happen through you. You've matured in Christ. Welcome to graduation. If you need prayer, we'd love to encourage you. You move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, amen.